Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of In Killing Color. This is episode number 43, and today we're going to talk about a case that I actually found on TikTok a couple of weeks ago, and I saw it, and it was one of those things where the people had like the picture, and they make the mouth move, and they'd be like, my name is such and such, I created something, blah, 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 but it's like an old picture, but it'd be like a current voice, but the mouth move, you know, but I saw that. And the picture was like really awkward to me because it was like, a, I didn't know if he was a kid or if he was like just a large, young looking adult. So I was like, okay, I'm about to get into this. But once I got into it, I figured out that it was a, literally a child. He was 14. And at age 14, he has been dubbed America's youngest serial killer and he just so happens to be a little black boy by the name of Craig Price so we're gonna go into Craig Price aka the slasher of Warwick and we're gonna talk about what happened in the late 1980s all right so get your drinks get whatever you're gonna get turn your volume up let's get to it Craig, like I said, was a really, really large little kid. Um, at the age of 13, he was already like five foot 11 and he was pushing around like 200 and something pounds. So <laughs> it was giving very much big boy. He um, is from a working class black family that lived in Rhode Island and he was just kind of quiet, but he was, you know, just a, a kid. And they called him Iron Man because he did play football, but he had a really, really, really small, like, little baby face. I'm going to sh- make sure you look at the pictures because he had a really small baby face. And he smiled a lot, and he lived in a small ranch house with his mom and dad, just chilling. So they say that Craig committed his first murder when he was actually 13. The victim was a white female from his neighborhood who he was seeing around several occasions, whatever. However, he ended up stabbing her to death with one of her kitchen knives after he broke into her house. So it says that back in, and when I say it says that, um, I'll put the link to where I got the information from so y'all can go look at it too. Okay, so I don't want to hear no shit. They said that in one summer night in 1987, Craig left and went to his neighbor's house, which was like two houses down. He broke into the house and he stabbed his neighbor, Rebecca Spencer. 58 times. That was a dramatic pause for the cause. 58 times. She was a 27-year-old mother of two. And like I said, he was 13 years old. Now, two years later, nothing happened. I guess he was just maybe trying to chill out. But at which point, he was already a murderer. He had not reached serial killer status yet until the age of 14 slash 15. So he had two other neighbors 
named Joan Heaton, who was 39. He actually butchered her in her kitchen with a set of knives she had actually just brought that same day. So she went to the, to the Walmarts, to the store, the Belks, the Uptons, the wherever you were going at the time, bought a knife set because she was going to cook a nice dinner for her two daughters, who was Jennifer, age 10, and Melissa, age 8. But nobody would get to eat dinner that night because not only did he stab the mama over 30 times, he stabbed Jennifer and Melissa both 62 times and there was pieces of knife broken off into their bones. And then he creeped back off, went back into his house and acted like he hated his parents again, probably, I'm sure. Now, his neighborhood was like, what the fuck is going on? Because there was no clues. There was no nothing. Everybody was just like, everybody was shook. Everybody was shook. So the neighbors went and locked their doors and just was like, uh-uh. And like I said, the Heaton house, the people who he um, unalived the first time, the house was literally just like a few few hundred miles, miles, few hundred yards, very close. And it was just kind of like, who was living around them that just like, what happened? So the police, you know, had been suspicious because they were going around to the houses asking, hey, have you seen anything? Do you know anything? Blah, blah, blah. And now they said that um, Craig was, you know, he was a teenager at the point. So he was always trying to make jokes and stuff. But he had been in trouble prior to that for some petty burglaries or he just called it thieving. So he stole from neighbors, stole from his friends. And he was just like, you know, it was just whatever. This was, we can do whatever we want to do. So the police was talking to him and they became suspicious about him because he had a really deep cut on his finger. And they said that they knew from the crime scene that there was more than the blood available of the family. There was somebody else. And there was also a bloody sock print on location, which just so happened to be a size 13. And guess what? Craig wore a size 13 shoe. So you didn't have on any shoes when you broke into their house, but you did have on socks though. And you walked through blood. And then they also found the knives in the backyard in the shed. So this is where it all comes down to children, children minded, young minded. And I hate to say it like this, but a, a sound criminal does not do these things. Or they might do it in the heat of the moment, but it's at least a little bit more covered up. I don't know. <laughs> huh? <laughs> this is definitely free little moot boot, but heads up, this motherfucker ain't never. 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 I don't think he should have. Because to be that young and to be, that's crazy. 13, 14, right at 15. So what we're going to do, um, I'm going to go back because I was, you know, I had a script and y'all know me. I'll be all over the place. I read the shit wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> we just got to go back a little bit, but I'm still going to talk about, I'm going to start back from the part where they said they found the size 13 sock print, like I said, a few minutes ago. So once the family of Jennifer and her two daughters, Jennifer, Joan and Melissa, people hadn't heard from them. It was around Labor Day. So the family goes over there. And they were like, okay, we're trying to see what's going on. And then when they get there, 
they saw that, you know, they were knocking on the door. Nobody came to the door and they knew that she must have been somewhere close by because her car was still in the driveway and stuff. So they rang the doorbell a bunch of times. Nobody came. So then they decided to go in the house. And then when they went in the house, the whole house was like covered in blood. I mean, if you can imagine, people were stabbed 62 times per person. And there was three people. So you can imagine what that crime scene looked like. Like, the detectives were so, like, taken aback. They were, like, holding back tears. It was just a lot. Because you can imagine, like, you walk in there and see your people, and you'd be like, God damn, what the fuck happened here? Because, you like, you cut your finger a little bit, and it's all over the floor. But you stabbed somebody 62 times. Times three. It probably just looked like, looked like you took a bucket and was just, like, splash. Like, y'all get what I'm saying? I'm trying to create a visual for you. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if you want that visual, but I gave it to you anyway, okay? <laughs> so, when the police decided to start looking into this case, they literally had their best detectives on it, and they were really determined to try to catch the right person because there was no really, like, closed-caption TV and all that stuff because this was the late 1980s. So it was really more so of a hard evidence, eyewitness-type thing and even though they had hard evidence, they didn't know who to trace it back to because, you know, I always talk about good old DNA. They didn't have the things. If they had the good DNA, Buddy would have been caught. I don't know how long it takes to run a DNA through the joint, but he would have been caught right then. Very quick and immediate, but we know that's not the thing. So, on September the 5th, 19... Pause. <laughs> what is he doing? Oh, Joby. So, we have a studio cat, y'all. And it's a really big cat, and he's very sweet. I don't really like cats, but I like this cat, Jovi. It's a big old fat orange and white cat. Not fully orange cat behavior, because you all know how orange cats act. But, you know, kind of close, not really. So, anyway, on September the 5th, 1989, and it was one day after the bodies were discovered, they got their first break in the case, which is shocking because... I thought it took longer based on what I read in different places, but looks like it was yesterday. Police detective Ray Pendergrass and Mark Brandreth, they were driving through a park in the neighborhood where he lives and Pendergast spotted a familiar face. They said they stopped the car to talk to the neighbor and the neighbor happened to be Craig Price. And Pendergast was his football coach in the youth football program. So I'm just gonna start saying P because I'm tired of saying Pendergast. P asked the youth if he had heard about the murders. And Craig responded with concern that he was aware of what happened and that he had seen the bodies coming out of the house the day before because he just lived a couple doors down from the, um, the Heaton family. So during that conversation, the two detectives noticed that Craig had a bandage on his hand. So then they were like, hey, so, you know, what happened to your hand? And Craig said that he got drunk several nights earlier. That's also a pause. He had got drunk... 15, drunk, okay, but he had got drunk several nights earlier and punched his hand through a car window close by. Now, when the detectives left, they were like, mm, I don't know about that because 15, drunk, but they would be like, you know, why would he admit to the police that, yeah, he punched through an actual car, vandalizing it? So either way, you could have got clocked if they was really beat for you. You could have got clocked for murder or you could have got clocked for vandalizing the car. So I guess they just said, let it go. So they thought that, you know, because they knew Craig and he was pretty chill, that he wouldn't do such a 
like traumatic thing. But you know, you can't put shit past nobody. More so now, because these kids these days are crazy as fuck. But apparently, they were crazy back then too, right? So, the detectives then went up and wrote up the report and began to investigate Craig's story because they were like, mm, we got to do something. And I feel like this is probably the best way we can start. So then they learned that there was no report of a car window being smashed in the same area that Craig had said that he was in. They also went by that area and they found no evidence of glass on the street. So now there's more doubt into what was being said. At that point, he had become the number one suspect in the murders. Even though the police officers were like, "Mm -mm, you guys are wasting your time. I don't think that's what it's going to be. But they were like, nah, it's something about Craig. And he probably did. You know what I'm saying? If you sung that in the ways of Michael Jackson, you was right. That's what I was doing. But if you didn't, you're still wrong. Anyway, so in the meantime, there was a blood spatter analyst. Always pause when I said blood spatter analyst. His name was Dr. Henry Lee. And he was contacted by the police and asked to examine their house for different clues, different bloods, like I mentioned earlier, all those stuff. He went to the house, analyzed the blood splatter, the trails, and all those things. And that's where he got the imprint for the size 13 sock on the floor. Okay, so there we go. Like I also said earlier, they were looking into Craig's background some more because now that he was a suspect, let's just look more into him. Like I said, he had a history of offenses with breaking and entering, theft, drugs, I would like to pause here because what the fuck was Craig's parents doing? What they was doing? He out here fighting, murdering, stealing, drinking, doing drugs. Y'all probably should have just left Craig to the streets. <laughs> y'all probably should have had just packed y'all's bags and dropped Craig off at the fire station for the safe kid drop zone. Because I don't know what he had going on. But they also knew that Craig did have a very violent temper. The police had been called to his house more than one occasion to settle disputes in which he was involved. Now, I don't know if that was with his mama, his daddy. They ain't never mentioned no siblings. So either way, Craig was not on any type of calm time with anybody. He was about violence. He woke up, choose violence every day. And, you know, some people just do that. And I'm, I, whatever, Craig, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure if you listen to this, you can, cause you're still locked up. So <laughs> If you want to listen to it, like we can talk about it. I would like to talk to Craig, <laughs> but he might be crazy. And then I'm a little off too. So then that probably wouldn't be a good interview in the first place. So at this point, the detectives were like, let's get over there and talk to Craig a little bit more. Let's formally interview him. So they went to the house and asked him to come with his parents to the station. And they all did. Now, during the questioning, Craig was asked more detailed questions about how he cut his hand. And he still said that he hurt himself trying to break into a car investigators were not convinced and they said let's take a polygraph test instead now y'all know them polygraphs back in the day was trash but that's all they had you know what i'm saying so they got to do what they had so the following day craig took the polygraph and they were asking him questions again about his hand the test revealed that ding 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 craig was lying of course he was according to the the blood splatter detective that was the very first big break in the case I mean, you got to have solid evidence, and I'm guessing you lying with a cut hand about an imaginary broken-in car would do that for you. So, even though the polygraph did say that he was not being honest, it did not prove that he was involved in the murders, so they needed more evidence. 
heard. Thorough investigation. I like to hear that. So during the interviews with Craig's friends and his families and stuff, just people who knew him from around, they said that he ran with <laughs> a gang of juvenile delinquents who were known to burglarize houses. They also discovered that Craig boasted, boasted about killing Rebecca Spencer. That was the first lady he unalived when he was 13. It was, hold on, what? <laughs> I'm still tripping over the fact that he was like, yeah, I did it. I did it. What's next? But with that, they also got information saying that Craig was capable of murder because if he was bragging about doing this, then guess what? He probably did these other things too. At that point, they were able to get a search warrant for Craig's house. They got a search warrant. They went to his house. But before they decided to do a overnight surveillance, before actually doing the actual search warrant, they wanted to make sure Craig was there. He wasn't going nowhere because they wanted to do the search while he was there so they could, I guess, look in his eyes and be like, we got you, bitch. You know what I'm saying? Because dramatic police effect. I get it. So in the early mornings of September 17th, the detectives gave the signal to go into the house. A team of officers rang the doorbell. Craig's daddy answered the door and was shocked to see the cops there. But he had to let him in. I'm not sure why you were shocked. Your son was in a gang. You said he had an attitude. He supposedly broke into a car. Why were you shocked? So, everybody else was in the house. The mom, his brother, apparently, he had a brother too. His brother, they were all waking up. Get on the couch. You sit here while we ransack your house. Everybody was so like, oh, my God, I can't believe what is going on. It's a cops in here. Oh, my God. But Craig was on the couch fucking sleep. Craig said, girl, I need to take a nap because a long night of criming, I need to take a nap. Okay. A long night of criming requires sleep. So they tooted around the house for a while. And then eventually they found something that they were looking for. While they were searching the shed behind the house, there was a trash bag found full of incriminating evidence. Now, in the bag, there were several bloody knives from the Heaton murder, along with bloodied article of clothes, gloves, and other miscellaneous objects. Investigators tooted their ass right back in the house, woke up Craig, and arrested him immediately for the murders of Joan, Jennifer, and Melissa. And he didn't give a fuck. Craig was ushered from his house to the police station with his parents. He was booked and interrogated about the murders. The detectives hoped Craig would come clean. But they definitely, they got something. I don't know if it was a clean. But he came somewhere. He came to the office, okay? So. <laughs> now, during the interview... Craig literally, as soon as they started, he was like, yeah, yeah, I did it. Fuck it. He literally sat there and described in detail, in detail, everything that happened that night. And even though his story kind of changed randomly throughout the, throughout the interview, overall, his story still stayed the same. Eventually, he got tired and he just decided, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going, I'm just going to actually tell the total truth. And then one of the detectives said that once... They heard what came out of his mouth. They were stunned, and everybody was just kind of like, I'm shocked. And even his dad, John, had to leave the room and go throw up. And he could not come back because he was so disgusted 
by what he heard. Craig's mom stood by while her son sat there and recounted the events that took place at Jones' house two weeks earlier. He told the interrogators that his primary reason for going to the house was just to rob them. But then he said he found an open window in the kitchen and he crawled through there. He landed on a table, which broke. But even though it was a bunch of noise, he was like, fuck it. I'm going to keep robbing the house anyway. He said that he walked through the residence looking for stuff to steal. And he didn't realize the, st- the noise when he fell on the table. Well, first of all, Craig, you are 200 pounds. Yes, the fuck you did. You knew. Joan woke up. She walked into the kitchen, saw Craig and was like, what the fuck? Turned on the light. Craig said he was shook. He turned around and grabbed Joan, punched her a whole bunch of times, strangled her. And while he was strangling her, she was screaming, of course. It woke up the kids. They came in the living in the room, saw their mom. The youngest daughter, Melissa, ran to the kitchen to call the police, but Craig snatched her up and she didn't get a chance to call him. Craig said that he tackled all the girls to the floor, then took him, went to the kitchen, grabbed some knives, and began to stab everybody. During the attack, one of the girls bit Craig's hand, which is how he got that bruise on his hand that he said he got while he was breaking into a car. In a fit of rage, Craig said that he bit the girl back in her face. He also bit Joan. He also smashed the youngest girl over the head with a stool when she fought against him still. Craig said he didn't expect through put up such a fight, but they did. And they fought until they died. Craig also said that during the murders, he accidentally stabbed his hand. I mean, I'm guessing when you're like swinging for the goddamn fences and you're swinging for everybody, bop, bop, you're going to hit yourself at some point. But the fact that you were so mentally disconnected that you were just stabbing everything in sight, biting, hitting, you were mentally like gone. Or you just really don't have like a conscience or any type of emotional connection to life. I don't know. (laughs) Once he stabbed himself in the hand, he said that he took off the gloves that he was wearing and went to the bathroom to make sure he was okay. He didn't realize that while he was walking to the bathroom, there was a trail of blood and feet prints left behind. Not because you just walked through a goddamn crime scene. What you thought? Craig, what grade were you in? 14. So you were a freshman. You know better than that. You got common knowledge. I'm, I'm going for it. I'm just going to speak directly. Like, Craig, come on. I hope somebody sends this to you because you were fucking ridiculous. You're wild. You're wild. So all the evidence that they found at the scene, found his house, blah, 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 literally supported everything that he said. The the blood analysis showed that the samples matched Craig's blood type and his shoe size, like we said earlier, was the same size, saying that, hey, Craig did do what he said he had done. Then Craig said later that he admitted to covering up their bodies with blankets, probably out of shame for what he had done. And then he tried to clean up the crime scene with towels. But he said that if he stayed too long, he thought the police would get him. So he quickly gathered up all the shit, put the towels in the bag, and hightailed it up out of there. He said he went home immediately. He said that he hid all his stuff in that bag in the attic. And that's where the detectives were able to find the stuff once they got that information. Because they got the stuff from the shed, but the clothes and stuff was in the attic. So they were able to go get that. <sighs> 
Can you imagine just being asleep, minding your own business at home, and your big, humongous, 200-pound, 14-year-old bust through the front door with a trash bag? Oh, uh, nothing. It's just my football pads. I'm going to put them upstairs. <laughs> I can't. I just can't. Like Reading all this just like blows my mind because it's like, like I said earlier, my son is that age. I can't. I can't imagine. I I literally, I can't put nothing past nobody because he, he might get mad at me one day and be like, bitch, but I don't know. You never know what chemically may go on and you just don't know what goes on these days. You got to keep an eye on these kids. Okay? Now, investigators were happy that they were able to get who they were supposed to get. Cause you know, at this point, this is four people. So to be a serial killer, you have to kill three. He killed four. So guess what? There you have America's youngest serial killer. Now, here's where everything kind of got a little bit slippery for Craig. Now, Craig literally had the actual laws on his side because he was just 15. Despite all the brutal murders that he did, Craig would never have to have a trial or really serve prison time because he confessed to his crime just weeks before his 16th birthday. So, according to Rhode Island law, all the courts could do was hold him in a training school until he was 21 and after that get out so after five years craig would have been a free man with a fucking clean record and y'all be talking about the law the law the law the law craig would have been out of jail in five years and he ain't alive four fucking people and then he wouldn't have had no record so he still could have voted he still could have went to college he still could have got a job he still could have had a wife Kind of like Mark Udo out there in Arizona. He could have did all these things. So the thought of Craig only serving five prisoners, like five years, kind of just sent everybody into like a spiral. And everybody was like, I don't know, how are we going to be able to get through this? Because at the time, serial killers below the age of 16 was a rare phenomenon in general. Because there's not a lot. That's one thing I probably am going to look up. But... If memory serves me correctly, it's not a lot. And don't you mention the DC sniper to me because he's not a serial killer. We've talked about this. Many a days we've talked about this. He's not a serial killer. He's a terrorist. And that's what the books say. So believe somebody else. Don't be mad at me. So even though Craig could not be tried for the murders because he confessed, he still did have to go a court hearing before he could be placed in the training school. So on September 21st, 1989, he appeared before a judge at the Kent County Courthouse. Now, during the proceedings, Craig was presented with the murder and the charges, and he said, yeah, I'm guilty. I did it. He got ordered to serve five years at the Rhode Island Training School's Youth Correction Center. It was a maximum security detention facility. He was also ordered to undergo intense psychological examination and therapy. However, Craig said, fuck you. I ain't taking no therapy. I don't want no treatment. He also refused to discuss the murders at all after that point by pleading the Fifth Amendment. So once he confessed that one time, he said, that's it for y'all hoes. I told y'all I did it. Why the fuck y'all want to keep talking about it? I mean, I ain't. I ain't saying in the words of Chris Rock. I ain't saying I agree, but I understand. <laughs> I understand. Y'all heard what I said the first time. 
why you want me to keep talking about it? I literally told you everything, top to bottom. Stop asking me. Okay, cringe. Hey, 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 big dog. Okay. So Craig then withdrew from the treatment program, and the judge and stuff was like, ah, we need you to do that. And they said that he left that because he fears that the psychiatric examination might result in him being placed in an actual psychiatric facility for commitment beyond his 21st birthday. Now you see where Craig is starting to make sense. and He may not be as stupid as we thought, because if he went in there and got that treatment, they would have seen something wrong because there was something indeed wrong with that child. So the court tried to get in there and say, you have to do this. Craig was like, fuck y'all. And he didn't have to go. In the meantime, Craig carried on with life in the institution. He got, he finished his high school equivalency test. So he got his little GED, started taking college courses. He believed he needed to improve himself academically so that he could get a job when he got out. Cause you know, in his head, he was getting out <laughs> when he was 21, six years. Okay. So by 1993, Craig developed a reputation for good behavior within the training school, despite the fact that he refused any of that mental treatment. In fact, he was in such a good standing that his superiors granted him permission to counsel other children at the facility. <laughs> what? Crazy teaching crazy. Yeah. Well, let me not say crazy. Diminished capacity treating diminished capacity, okay? <laughs> uh, even so, while he was in there, Craig also became a fucking security guard. <laughs> he got to patrol the hallways, and he was even allowed to make a rap video at school, <laughs> which included threatening lyrics, as they called it. <laughs> Now, when the people in the public found out about Craig's special treatment, they were not fucking having it. They was like, nah, nah, we need something to happen. So there was tons of protests. So after lots of protests and letters and things, it stopped. But there was still a bigger problem. Craig was about to be released. He, he had less than a year and a half left to do before he was actually going to be out. And nothing really could stop the fact that he was going to get out. Now, there was four women, four people who was instrumental in stopping Craig's release. It was Joan's mom, her sister, one of the police captains, and the attorney general from Rhode Island. From the beginning, they were lobbying against the legislator, hey, Y'all need to come up with some new bills to prevent this motherfucker from getting out because this is insane. Like, there's no reason you kill four people and he get out just because it's the law. I don't fucking think so. So they tried to do everything they could to prevent him from getting out, doing whatever. So for the next, like, year or so, the four people I discussed just now, they were, you know, they were out here going with, like, citizens' organizations. They were trying to lobby with mayors, whoever, everybody that could come up with some type of bill or some type of law to pass, they were out there working on that because they were not 
trying to get that. And they were literally trying to force them to do something with him getting into some type of psychiatric treatment program because he still hadn't done it. But you know he needed it because how would you release somebody back out into the public? They haven't had any rehabilitation. They just acted like they were rehabilitated. So he could have just got back out and did whatever he had to do. They didn't give a shit. So the whole time, these people were in the background trying to keep him in there. Craig was in there preparing himself to get out of jail. So by the end of that year, he had already been ordered on six times, six different times, that he has to have these mandatory psychiatric evaluations. But he kept refusing, saying that I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. But as of soon at that point, he wouldn't be able to use the Fifth Amendment anymore. On May, in May of 1994, everybody's first school president, Bill Clinton, <laughs> flew to Providence, Rhode Island, where he was going to meet with people and discuss the state of affairs there. There was thousands of demonstrators. There was an airplane that carried a banner that said, alert killer for killer Craig Price moving here. So they had like banners. They had people. And Bill Clinton was like, girl, you know how Bill was like, what the fuck is this? I don't know how he sounded, but I'm guessing he probably sounded like that. Everybody was not hearing it. So there was an interview that Bill Clinton did, and he um, expressed his, like, growing concern and just, like, kind of, like, worded out about Craig being let out in about six months. He suggested that the records of juvenile offenders should not be sealed but publicly accessible. He also mentioned that the laws needed to be changed to prevent juveniles and anybody with a violent history from purchasing firearms. So just 15 days after Clinton aired his comments, Rhode Island lawmakers like reviewed all the bills, changed some stuff. But just then something changed on June the 8th. They said that they were shocked. And by they, I mean the citizens of Rhode Island, the area he was from, feeling that Craig was indicted on one count of simple assault an extortion for threatening to injure an officer while at the training school. One week later after that, he was arraigned and he had a bail set for $500,000 and his trial was set for later that fall. So right there, hey, oh shit, we got you motherfucker, yeah, it's not getting out now, you get me trouble. So later on that same month, seems like Craig was on a downward spiral, baby. He had another problem. His refusal to take those psychiatric examinations had gone on too long. He was warned that he was in danger of being held in contempt of court if he failed to undergo the treatment. And he said, fuck y'all. Okay, so Craig's hearing took place on June 27th. And they said that he was again, sir, you need to go. And he said, no. So then that judge was like, all right, bitch. They found him in contempt of court and they added an extra year to his jail time to be served at the actual adult jail in Cranston, Rhode Island. That was the only way they could get him situated without putting him out right then. Now, after almost five years, Craig finally said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and uh, take that uh, psychiatric help. So there was a Dr. Barnum. He was a forensic psychiatrist, and he used to be the head of the Boston Juvenile Court Clinic. He's the one who led his evaluation. Even though Craig participated in it, he didn't do it wholeheartedly. So, of course, he didn't because he didn't want to fucking do it. In fact, they said that he lied about many of the events concerning the murders, 
when he was back in there after they had already had his truthful information in the court files before. All right, so upcoming trial for the assault, extortion, things like that. On October the 3rd, 1994, his trial began. Everybody was like, yeah, courtroom was packed, news was packed, everybody was late. Overhearing the case was a judge named Thomas Needham. Attorneys Robert Mann and Katie Hines led the defense team and the prosecutors, Patrick Young and Mike Stone, represented the state's case against Craig. Courtroom was hella quiet and they listened to everything they had. Now they said that he told the jurors that they heard and listened to how Craig, Craig Price, every time I think about him, I be thinking about somebody else and I don't know why. Anyway, they figured out and they listened to how Craig verbally assaulted the officer and all because he was given a disciplinary report because he was supposed to give up some cigarettes and a lighter and he did and so Craig cussed his ass out and <laughs> did it in front of a bunch of people. Let's just fast forward because I'm actually getting tired of talking about Craig because he's giving manipulation. He's giving all of these things. So, of course, they brought Craig to the stand. He goes up there, tells his side of the story, says, yeah, he tried to make me get rid of my cigarettes in my life. I told him, no, they fought, did all these things. Everybody saw all the stuff he did. And it was like, OK, so October 6, 1994. They just sentenced him to 15 years eight of which were suspended, but that's not it. The next year, in February of 1996, the prosecutors took an uncommon step and they charged him for, for a probation violation, even though he was still in jail. <laughs> he was also charged with assault. Craig was found guilty of the accusations and it had another year added onto that. Next, the year after that, <laughs> Craig was placed on trial for criminal contempt because he failed to comply with the evaluations again that they told him he needed to have. Craig got an additional 25 years on top of the other two. 10 of those years were to be served outright with 15 years of probation. In October of 1998, seven more years were added to Craig's sentence for assaulting a correctional officer. In February 99, and again in October of 2001, he was sentenced to a total of four more years, again for verbally and physically assaulting correctional officers. Now, as of today, well, as of 2022, last year, his release date was supposed to be February of 2022. But here it is, November 2023. And 56-year-old Craig is still in jail. He's still trying to be a rapper. He's still really big, but not as big anymore because everybody else is big too now. But he's still in jail. He still don't give a shit about what he said. He still don't give a shit about what he did. And he's still not getting them fucking psychiatric evaluations. <laughs> so, <laughs> in conclusion... Craig played the system for as long as he could. And he wait, he spent literally his, just like 85, 90% of his life. He spent 90% of his life locked up. All because he didn't want to take psychiatric evaluation. Now, I'll play devil's advocate for one second. Dear Craig Price, comma. 
at age 15, had you have one in there, did your evaluations, did your therapy, guess what? You'd have been out of jail 30-something years ago. You could have moved somewhere else. Your record would have been closed. Nobody would have known shit. And you could have started a whole new life. But instead, you thought you was being smarter than the smartie, and you got outsmarted. And now your ass is still in jail. You hate to see it, but you got what you deserve, big dog. <laughs> so, yes, that is the uh, lengthy wild tale of the slasher of Warwick, a.k.a. 13, 14, 15-year-old Craig Price. And he is actually the very first black child serial killer that I have ever heard of. And more than likely, y'all too. <laughs> Unless we're talking about Lil Mook Mook and them. But them motherfuckers don't count because they ain't got caught yet. Okay? <laughs> Make sure y'all follow me everywhere in Killing Color. That's all I got to say. Because I am too done about Craig's ass. I'll talk to y'all next time. Bye. <laughs>